Well, you go on vacation, Kristen, and this is what happens. You, you and I were both on vacation last week. You know, we had this rather discombobulated podcast we did, had to get it in early. You went to Mexico. I went to Los Angeles. And and then we didn't even post the podcast until after the vacation. <laughs> it went up a few days late. It was a, all a complete disaster. And in the meantime, the world just goes completely haywire. First, uh, on Saturday, you know, Dylan Farrow uh, uh, comes out with a letter in uh, Nicholas Kristof's blog in The Times accusing um, Woody Allen of uh, having molested her. Then... Philip Seymour Hoffman dies, uh, just out of out of the blue, at least to, to me. You know, one of the greatest living actors, one of the greatest actors Ever. of the modern era, yeah. dies on Sunday. Um, and it's just, just a complete, it's been like the most ridiculous week. Um, so we have kind of a lot to cover. We're going to touch on both these subjects uh, in addition to... Two other two movies that have uh, that have been released: The Monuments Men, the new George Clooney World War II drama, and also the Lego Movie, which you were really excited about. Which I was very excited about. Um, so we'll see if you're still excited later when we get to that <laughs> review. We certainly will. Sort of the best of weeks, the worst of weeks. Mm. Um, but first, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Rafer Guzman, movie critic for Newsday, and I'm Kristen Meinzer, culture producer for The Takeaway, and this is Movie Date. Well, Kristen, do you want to give us a brief recap of Woody Allen and your thoughts on this matter? Yeah. So as you were saying, um, Dylan Farrow, who uh, the daughter that Woody and Mia adopted together at one point, many of us forget that there were molestation accusations that occurred at pretty much the same time that there was also the Woody Allen Sunni affair happening. Right. Uh, 93, I think, was yeah. when it all first came to light. Yeah, back in the early 90s. And uh, some people confused the two, conflated the two, and I, I think it was very complicated for a lot of people. But then, you know, over the course of 20 plus years, it just kind of goes under the radar again. Yeah. And then, this last weekend, Dylan Farrow, in more detail, explains what happened to her as a child and what she's been doing with her life since then. And Everybody in the media seems to be weighing in on this. Yeah. Really reputable journalists, not reputable journalists, <laughs> other right. Hollywood people <laughs> all over the Twitter sphere, all over the editorial pages of everything from the New Republic to the New York Times. It's everywhere right now. Yeah. And um, Rafer, you and I talked about what we should be saying about this. And one of the things that you and I both agreed on is we wanted to get right out there and tell all of you guys, we don't know. Right. I think, well, and that's the thing is really nobody knows. I mean, I think a lot of people have been going back to the um, Vanity Fair article that Maureen Orth did back in the early 90s and then also another one not too much, uh, not too long ago yeah, with Mia a few Farrell, months ago. a few months ago. And so people have been, I think, per use, you know, sort of scanning those for clues, um, you know, and I think you've seen a lot of... Um, you know, documentary filmmaker uh, Robert Weed weighed in. Uh, you know, sort of came came to the, de- the defense. It seemed to me pretty vociferously of Woody Allen, casting doubt on Dylan Farrow's uh, allegations, and also Mia that, Farrow's character. Mia Farrow's character seemed a little bit of a I don't know if smear job is quite the right word, but it's certainly bordering on it. 
And, um, you know, and then, of course, everyone else is basically weighing in saying, I think he did it. I think he didn't do it. But really, I think we're never going to know. I don't think we're ever going to know. They're, they're apparently we're just too far outside the situation. We're too far outside the situation. Um, the statute of limitations is run out. I think Dylan Farah has some legal recourse, apparently, in Connecticut, uh, from what I've read. There may be some some kind of suit she could still bring against him. What that would result in, I don't know. Will that answer the question? I, I don't really know. And um, I guess there's the general question of are we what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to boycott Woody Allen's films now? Are we going to, um, you know, or are we going to go see his films and say, I don't care if he did this or I don't I don't care that he did this or what? Um, I mean, I can't tell people what to do and I can't say what the right or wrong answer is. And I know that for a lot of people I know, they can only draw the line with this situation, but not that one. They can deal with that being awful, but they can't deal with homophobia. They can deal right. with that being awful, but they can't deal with rape and molestation. They can, right. you know, and they have to draw certain lines because if you across the board draw a line and say, I will no longer see a film that has anything unethical in it or immoral, right. I am not going to see another movie again. Right. I'll see maybe two movies a year. <laughs> That's right. So, but you know, anyway, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting. Um, supposedly, Woody Allen is on the verge of a rebuttal in the, yes. New, York, in the New York Times. Uh, whether that happens or not, I don't know. Um, but uh, Margaret Sullivan, the public editor, uh, wrote uh, for the New York Times, wrote that uh, that that could be forthcoming. So we shall see what he says. Um, so let's move on to and uh, and even sadder in a different way subject: uh, the death of Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, on Sunday, dead at forty six. And Ray, for you and I, decided rather than just talk about his great canon of work, we could all go on to IMDb and say, yes, that's a great sure. movie, that's a great movie, that's a great movie. Because everything he did, right. he always stood out in. Everything from Boogie Nights all the way to... The Master, when the devil knows you're, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, uh, uh, most, uh, most Wanted Man. Talented Mr. Ripley. Oh, God, tell oh, him Mr. So Ripley. Good. Oh, so and, good. And he's just such, you know, his legacy is amazing in film, but we, we also want to remember what he was like as a person. And so we decided to go back before he was famous and talk to a teacher who knew him as a kid, his, his high school English teacher. So in just a minute, we're going to play our interview with him. Ray, for a lot of us in America and around the world right now are feeling a hole in our collective hearts, our Hollywood hearts and our cultural hearts uh, with the loss of Philip Seymour Hoffman. And we're hearing a lot about his great canon of work, the awards he won, rightly so. But we want to talk today about him as a person. Yeah. And um, remember who he was and talk with somebody who knew him before he was famous, when he was just developing his talents and becoming a fully forged human being. So we're very lucky to be joined today by John Baines, English teacher at Fairport High School in Rochester, New York. And John Baines was at one point Philip Seymour Hoffman's English teacher. So John Baines, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, glad to join you. John, I understand you have uh, your entire current class there uh, listening uh, with you. You're on your cell phone in your classroom. Is that right? Yeah, I have them. Uh, they're, they're really being quite compliant. They're reading The Great Gatsby and uh, hopefully picking up on all the color imagery, et cetera, and other motifs in it. <laughs> all right. Do they, do they, do they want to say hi? Can we hear them if they say hi? Yeah, they want to give a hi. You guys want to give a hello? <laughs> we got great 
We've got great kids here at Fairport High. Great all families right. that we serve. Well, cool. hi to all of you kids. Thanks for letting us talk to your teacher for a few minutes. So, John, tell us uh, when you taught Philip Seymour Hoffman. What, what year was that? Around how old was he? Well, he was in his senior year. I had known him quite well and as a junior. He graduated from Fairport High School in 1985. His older brother, Gordy, who is a writer, lives in Hollywood and has written a film, Love, Liza, that he made with Phil, Yes, was a good friend of mine, and I was involved in the literary magazine with Gordy. So when I met Phil as a junior and we would ram around and just laugh and chuckle in the hall, he was this very uh, fun-loving, high-energy, strawberry blonde kid who had been a wrestler and uh, had been a bit of a jock and was transitioning into the theater work. You know, we knew he was talented. Everybody's eyes went to him on stage when he made a couple cameos. But what really kind of changed everything was we'd been reading Death of a Salesman, and Phil was cast as Willie Loman. And so we had many, many chats about the role, et cetera. And a bunch of us in the English department said, well, look, uh, we all read the play. Let's have the entire junior class go down to the auditorium. And watched the play for two hours done by their peers. It was a high-risk thing to do, such a heavy play. And Phil was so amazing in the play that afterwards it was about a two-second complete silence, then gasp, and then an explosion as every kid in the room jumped up and surged toward the stage after the show to just shower Phil and the rest of the kids with their love and appreciation for, for their work. So we knew, you know, we knew we had something special in Phil Hoffman when he was here with us. And in my class, he was he was a tremendous amount of fun. Uh, he, he was not necessarily the most academically oriented in the sense that he cared about grades. But he was ferociously committed to meaning. He wanted to get to the bottom of text. He wanted to get to the bottom of poems. His mom worked her way through law school as she raised four kids and later was elected judge here in Rochester. And uh, she was active in the political world, and I think that he was always very interested in public policy. And So even as a young man, he was conversant in the issues of the day, and he could connect what was happening in the classroom to current events and what would happen in American literature and in American history. He was a delight to teach, and we formed a friendship that continued when he was at NYU, and we were close and stayed in touch right through to this last month. He was a kid that had a magic about him. He was vice president of his class. He was part of every group. He didn't exclude anybody, and he was a kid that everybody respects, and that was Phil Hoffman. And were you surprised at all? Did you expect for him to become so enormously loved and um, celebrated in the world of acting? You know, I I thought he'd be a working actor. We've had a number of skits here do well. In fact, uh, another one of my students, V.J. Iyer, you've probably profiled him. He's uh, named sure. by Billboard, the leading uh, jazz pianist in the world. And he was a student of mine at Fairport High, and he, he wasn't, you know, he didn't even play in the band. He was uh, as a piano player. So, you have these students and you love them. They're beautiful, like these kids in the room right now. And you don't know which of these kids will be embraced by the world. All you want is for them to be able to be happy and make a living. And that's all we expected from Phil. You know, when I saw him in Son of a Woman, I knew that you know, there was buzz around that role. So we expected him to keep working. 
But no, I didn't expect him to become the transcendent character actor of his generation. And in fact, expectations like that just don't even seem fair. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I think, you know, to be an actor, I think you need more than just an an innate talent and and the courage to get up on the stage. You need need to have other skills that you bring to it, you know, some experience with people, uh, maybe some kind of kind of an, an emotional intelligence, I guess, knowing Philip Seymour Hoffman and also, I'm sure, going to see his movies when they came out. What do you think it was that made him so good at his work? We had an incident in my class, I never forgot, when he was just in a bemused way staring at me as I was teaching. And I said, what's with the face, Hoffman? And he said, well, I've just been watching you manipulate everybody for the last 30 minutes, pushing everybody around, getting them to think what you want them to think, framing everything in terms that are going to take this class where you want it to go. <laughs> I just looked at him. I said, that's a perfect description of teaching. <laughs> and I never, we laughed so hard because what kid can see the rhetoric of an adult at that level at 17. So he, there was no doubt in my mind that this was a young person who was interested in the infrastructure of the human psyche. Um, a sensitive question. How, how did you find out about all of this? Well, my grandchild was just christened, and I came home and I uh, got a text from a guidance counselor who uh, knew Phil, and uh, I, was, I was alone, and you know, I just had to cry, really. It's, it was that simple. Had myself a good old fashioned cry, and uh, but I just feel like I want to send love out to this family. You know, his brother, his his partner, his three kids, and can't stop the uh, cascade of media interest in his death. But trying to focus on the celebration of Phil's life. Well, we're so glad we were able to talk with you today and just hear some great stories about what he was like as a young person and who he was as a friend. And we really appreciate your time today. And thank you also to your students for being patient and letting us interview you while in the classroom. Yeah, well, you know, this is the greatest job in the world, teaching these kids, so we love them. Wow, that that's an amazing perspective he brings to all of this. Yeah, that was that was really really great talking to him. And I, uh, 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 listeners, I apologize. We apologize if there's a little, little background noise in there from uh, from the ex- excitable high school kids. But I thought it was actually really nice that he let his um, that he let his kids listen to that and kind of be be a be a part of that conversation. Yeah, so we're we're just really appreciative of that time he gave us too. Just great hearing that other side of you know the story about who Philip Seymour Hoffman was. Well, let's uh, turn our attention to the, the, the movies of the week, uh, beginning with, I think, the, the Monuments Men. So it's World War II, and the U.S. decides that not only are we going to go and liberate Europe and do all the things that our good American doughboys do over there, we're also going to try and rescue the art that the Nazis stole from private collections, thousands and thousands and thousands at le- of pieces at least, of art. At least tens of thousands, Tens I of thousands say. of pieces of art. And so a group of men, the Monuments Men, as they're called, are entrusted with the duty of trying to uncover this art. And, of course, the whole crew is headed up by the very debonair George Clooney. Here's a clip. 
Monuments, man. Signed by Roosevelt. Oh, I see that. And to put a team together and try to protect what's left and find what's missing. Aren't you a little old for that? Yes. You want to go into a war zone and tell our boys what they can and cannot blow up. That's the idea. Okay, how many men? For now, six. Jesus. So let's, uh, let's run down the cast. George Clooney. Matt Damon. John Goodman. Bob Balaban. Uh, Jean Dujardin from The Artist. Kate Blanchett. Oh, Bill Murray, of course. Oh, yes, Bill Murray. Right. Uh, and um, Hugh Bonneville as, uh, as Donald Jeffries, uh, an art, another art expert. All, the, all of these guys are academics, historians, art dealers, actual artists. John Goodman plays a sculptor. Bill Murray is an architect. So you do have this kind of um, Ocean's Eleven meets the Bridge in the River Kwai, I guess I would say. I, I thought meets, well, initially I thought plus it meets Raiders of the Lost Ark. But then it mm. very quickly decides not to actually follow through on that. Right. Uh, well, and yeah, um, there's no uh, <laughs> there's, there's no supernatural there's no, component. <laughs> no, but there's also no action, and there's no yeah, there's no oh, romance. There's no real interesting parts. There's no real danger. There's no Fun. not much tension. Uh, yeah, story. And why is that? Why is that with this movie? It's it's odd. It's very odd because here's the thing. This is based on a on a nonfiction book um, uh, called The Monuments Men. And yet, none of the characters in this film are real. They are all either inspired by real people, or they are composites of real people, or they are just whole cloth fictions, but none of them are actually real people. And so I kept thinking to myself, why does this film seem so limited? It's, it, it's, it seems as though the film is afraid to kind of dream up an exciting, implausible, but, but good dramatic scenario to throw these people into, you know, you, it would seem to me like, like George Clooney, who wrote and directed, it would seem to me like he's got poetic license to do whatever he wants. Oh, these are yeah. all fictional characters. Absolutely. So why does the, so why the film seem so kind of the, the, the scrapes and the dangers they get into seem for the most part, I mean, we will not say dangerous at all. It's just, it's not that exciting. It's, it's, and you know, not you're, only is it not exciting, but the story doesn't progress. One of those little almost danger things happens, but then it's not really related to the next scene. Yes. The that's, next scene, yes. It doesn't move you forward in the story at all. It just seems like a bunch of standalone moments of, isn't that quaint? Look, I, yeah. got, a, I got a Christmas record. Let's play it. That sure is a nice Bruges Madonna. Wow. We're going to stand in this cave for a little bit. Right. All right. Great. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I, next scene. But it doesn't move the story. The scenes don't take you to the next scene, to the next scene. There's no urgency to any of it. That's partly because I think the Monuments Men themselves, they kind of pair off. Um, you know, Bob Balaban and Bill Murray um, make one kind of odd couple. Uh, Jean okay. Dujardin and, and uh, John Goodman make another kind of odd couple. And uh, Matt Damon and Kate Blanchett, another odd couple. And right. Stuff. But I still think, I don't care if they're paired off, you... Making a movie have the possibility to create the story where the tension still right, builds, right, right, right. The tension never builds, right. Where's where's that big, grand, dramatic set piece that we're kind of looking for that will tie it all up and and also explain to us as the film does through speeches, explain to us why it's so, so important. Many speeches, so many speeches, <laughs> most delivered by George Clooney, very eloquently. He's you know he's great, yeah. but uh, did explain to us why we are supposed to care about this art so much. Um, you know, it's it's a valid question when people are putting their lives in the line. 
fine. Um, but yeah, for some reason, I thought this movie was kind of an okay date. Mm, I don't even know if it's okay. You think sub okay? Like it couldn't make up its mind about what the tone was supposed to be. It didn't know right. if it was a comedy or there were times where it's supposed to be very schlocky and emotional. But it just felt like they didn't know what they were supposed to be doing here. So I'm not going to say it's an okay date. Not even, even an okay Not date. even an okay uh, date. Less than okay date. Well, okay. So let's see how we feel about the Lego movie, Kristen. Now I need you to do the plot of this one. I'm not oh, even okay. going to bother with this one. Okay, let's see. It's, this is kind of a complicated one. Let's see if I can do it. So this is, uh, this is an animated movie. It all takes place in a, in a Lego world. And uh, Emmett, uh, with the voice of Chris Pratt, is our hero. He's a, a lowly, humble construction worker, conformist, living in kind of a conformist Lego, happy, happy world. But he uncovers... A dark plot by Lord Business, who is uh, voiced by Will Ferrell, and Will and Lord Business is going to try to glue the entire Lego universe together because he's such a tyrannical perfectionist that he doesn't want anything to ever be built again out of the Legos. But if Emmett can get the piece of resistance and become a master builder, he just might be able to save the Lego galaxy. Here's a clip. We can build a submarine. A bad submarine patent pending. With the rainbows. And dream catchers in case we take a nap. Like an underwater spaceship. But you can't build all of them at once. Ready? Ready? Break. These are the colors I need. Blue raspberry and sour apple. If anybody has black parts, I need them, okay? I only work in black. And sometimes very, very dark gray. That was a great job summing that up, Rafer. Well, thank you. That, that was <laughs> very, you. very good. Now... The way you summed it up almost made it sound like this movie was exciting and had stuff happening in it. Now, uh, oh, 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 no! Yeah, oh, you, no. Now, so you felt. Tell me your, <laughs> tell me your thoughts, Kristen, about the Lego Movie. I felt like I got trapped in a toy store where all of the batteries are in all of the toys at once, and everything's blinking and moving around a lot, but they're not actually doing anything. Okay. And that there's not really a story. I just, I'm stuck in aisle nine. Somebody take the Duracells out of the machines. I just cannot <laughs> handle this anymore. That's how I felt the whole time. Okay, I, uh, you've, okay, so you've hit upon – those are my two main criticisms of the Lego movie. One is uh, the story is pretty jumbled. It doesn't make quite – it doesn't make quite the nice streamlined, easy-to-get sense that I wish it did. Um, you know, it doesn't have that kind of ring of myth the way that I kind of want it to, the, mm-hmm. way, the way Star Wars – The way it wanted or, to itself. You could tell it was it trying to, to be like the Matrix in a way. You yes, have, yes. Yeah, you have certain – Ways it's trying to be great, right? Well, I mean, part and, of you... and impart messages of greatness onto you, right? A lowly yellow-faced Lego man, right? <laughs> right. Uh, and two, I do think the movie gets very carried away by its ideas. It's got a, it's got way too many ideas, way too many jokes. It's trying to do way too much, and it get, it all gets very busy, busy. And I think that's one of the reasons that the storyline gets a little a little buried at times. However. I thought the Lego movie was fantastic. I thought, oh, no, you didn't. I thought Rafer. it was you did so not. good. I need to point out to the listeners that you are fighting a cold right now. You're that's probably true. on medication. That's true. Just, just, just a little Tylenol and aspirin. That's all. And This is not a good movie. Oh, it's so good. This was, it's I felt so like there good. should have been a warning on the screen. If you have epilepsy, please leave. Okay, and, listen. I, you're, you're right. You're right. It's, it's, it's a little louder and a little busier than I would have liked. Uh, that, that, is, that is really true. There's a lot so going on. It was so jumbled. It was so... 
so jumbled. And but I, I think, I think here, here's, here's, are here are some of the things I loved about it. It was, it was really smart, really funny. I thought this is uh, written and directed by um, Phil Lord and Chris Miller. They're the guys who did uh, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, but not the sequel, which sucked. Uh, so this, is, I think, this is a real tour de force for them. I, I, I think this is going to like, like rocket those guys into the stratosphere. But so I love the movie. I loved the animation, which is. I really wish it was real Legos, though. Well, but I, if here was what I was thinking: if it were real Legos, they would still be making the movie. <laughs> the movie, the movie would, we wouldn't see the movie mm, until about true. like twenty thirty. But so I think they had to computer animate it. But uh, they do, in their defense, kind of they used um, fifteen million individual virtual bricks. So all those little bricks are little pieces that are being manipulated, and you can feel it. Uh, the animation studio is uh, Animal Logic, uh, who did Happy Feet, not my favorite film. But they were their director, the guy who directed the animation, is Chris McKay, who's a claymation guy. He did Robot Chicken. And I feel like Ooh. that great blend of computer animation that looks like stop-motion stop animation really worked. I mean, the Legos... Everything's made out of Legos. The explosions are made out of Legos. Yes, the, and the, there, the there water, are, the smoke, the fire, the laser point, gun blast. Yeah, are, there are a couple of points where that's visually fantastic. When they're out on the ocean, I thought that was beautiful. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. Was beautifully done. But one of the things I liked about the ocean scene was it was also so simple. It was yeah, just, it's, a, it's a moment of quiet. Yes. <laughs> that's true. And, and the first time you, when you go out into Lego City, that's fantastic. You're like, every single street, building, everything right. is a Lego. Some of right. that is fantastic also. And I know what you're saying, Rafer, about like, this is a visually really great accomplishment, but so is improvisational jazz, but do you want to listen to it all day? <laughs> hmm. Well, That's, I mean, that but shows I, great skill. A lot of things that show great skill aren't enjoyable. But aside from the aside from the animation, uh, and again, I, I agree that the storyline is is a is a drawback. But I but I thought the voice cast was fantastic, um, and I loved some of the oh, characters. Seems too tongue in cheek and self aware a lot a of little, the time. A, 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 again, again, I know, and I think they sh- they probably could have wink, toned wink, some of that down. Yeah, right, I said something right. kind of clever, but I'm making fun of what I said that was. But clever. here are the two things I like. Well, I liked Elizabeth Banks as um, as wild. Style while with while with, mm-hmm. an, with a Y. I liked her. Um, I liked Will Arnett as Batman. I liked I liked I liked the fact that he played Batman as kind of like an, like an insufferable goth rocker. Mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty funny. But the two the two voice actors that impressed me the most because they're usually so stentorian and serious, and you hear them doing like. You know, if you go to the Natural History Museum, you'll hear them, you know, intoning over some something about the universe, some video that you're seeing. The two that I loved were Morgan Freeman as Vitruvius, who's the kind of guru who just kind of happens to be kind of winging the whole thing. And I liked um, Liam Neeson as good cop, bad cop. He plays a cop who is both good cop and bad cop because his head swivels Liam back and Neeson forth. Liam Neeson is always great. And he plays Paw Cop. He plays his own dad, Paw Cop. Yeah, when, when, and I when, thought when I they were Liam both Neeson's really voice, funny. I was excited. I agree with you. I was excited about Liam Neeson's voice. But I, I still think you have so many great components you don't put them all together. No, you know when you take all the Lego packages together, yeah. and yeah, and you just throw everything together. That's what this felt like a lot of the time, and not in a good way. I I agree. It, it's a little too busy, but I will say, here's what I'll say. It this is the this is the rare kids movie that suffers from overambition. One, it's been a long time since I've seen a kid movie that tried to be too smart and and too good. Uh, and two, I just think it's so. 
It's so fun and so visually dazzling. Oh, God. Great so, date. Bad date. Oh, bad date. Bad, bad, date. bad date. I can't believe you liked that one. Oh, loved it. Okay. Oh, All right. All well, right. So in a little bit, as usual, we're going to end with trivia. But first, we have to make this unfortunate announcement. Yeah, the announcement. Oh, the announcement. Rafer, do you want to talk about the announcement? The announcement is that our singles night... That we were so excited about. Movie trivia singles mixer. God, movie sing. It was going to be in the green space here uh, at WNYC um, on February 13th. Yeah, the day before Valentine's Day. And Rafer and I were both going to be there. We were really excited about this. And it has been canceled. And do you want to know why? Because, oh, because dudes, I'm blaming the dudes for this. Because not enough dudes signed up. Yeah, all the female tickets sold out like that. Snap, boom! All the tickets sold for females. The male tickets? They... No, nobody. <laughs> no guys. In, I in order for the ratio to even be close, they said of female to Ugh. male. In order for it to even be close, we'd have to sell at least sixty more male tickets. What is what is that about? Oh God! Anyway, so that's that. Oh. Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah. So in the future, guys, when we have an event, we expect you to show up too. Step up, would you? Yeah. I on. I told the coordinator of the event that I would sleep with five women, <laughs> if it would help. <laughs> but no, but not more than that. Yeah, Rafer, she you said, can only do so much. You're only one man. I'm only one guy. Yeah. What can you do? You're not sixty I men. Can't sleep with all sixty. No, you can't. No, not possible. So, so much for that. So much for singles night. We'll try that again. We'll we'll, tr- we'll do another event at some point. But all right. Yeah. Anyhow, it's time to get to trivia. But first, before we do this week's and last week's trivia question, we have a follow up with Kay Ann about Gene Hackman. You might recall. In a very recent podcast, we asked the question about Young Frankenstein, and we had somebody call in to say that the best man in her parents' wedding was Gene Hackman. Who was in Young Frankenstein, that's right. Yes, and we said, what? How did that happen? Call us in. Tell us <laughs> more said, about what? that. what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so her name is Kay Ann, and Kay Ann called to give us a little bit more information about that whole situation. Hi, Krista and Rafer. This is Kayanne Leg again. My father grew up with Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman's from Danville, Illinois. They went to grade school together, high school together. They were all buds in a gang, so to speak, you know, a group of boys. And when he was young, before he came out to Hollywood, was the best man at my father's wedding. They kept in touch here and there over the years. And that's about it. Love your podcast. <laughs> Bye. Kay Ann, such that's so great. Thank you, thank and, you, and Kay Ann, thank you also for posting that terrific picture on our Facebook page, so everybody who's a movie date fan now can see your parents' wedding with Gene Hackman there. It's pretty awesome as best man. That's Facebook.com/slash/moviedatepodcast, and um, so thank you so much for that. And well, let's get to uh, last week's and this week's trivia questions. So. Um, remember last week, we were talking about the movie Labor Day, Rafer. That's right. In honor of that movie, we asked about another movie centering on a notable day on the calendar. And we played the following clip and asked you to identify the movie. Now, don't you tell me you don't remember me because I sure as heck fire remember you. Ned! Ryerson! And here is the correct answer. Hello, Kristen Rafer. This is Matt from Connecticut. It's Groundhog Day. Um, I love the podcast. Keep up the great work. Bye. 
All right, Matt. Great job, Matt in Connecticut. Very well done. That's I, That was a very brief clip, too, like five seconds. Yeah, I know, right I know, I know. Well done. All right, good. That's good. Uh, so, okay. So now for this week's trivia, uh, we'll, we'll springboard off of Monuments Men because that is about art theft. A pretty common topic for the movies. There have been a lot of art theft movies. Um, we found one that we think might be a bit of a stumper. We're going to play a clip from it. We'd like you to identify this film. Tell us the title. Bonus points if you can identify the two leads. Here's the clip. Knees together. Down, down, tuck. I'll watch the mask. You keep your mind on your movement. Come on, move it. You've got three minutes till the guard gets here. Up. Good. Better. Left leg, left. I need a break. You'll get a break when you get it right. Now, as always, we'll take from all of the pool of correct answers one random answer and choose you as the winner. Call us at 5717movies. Or you can visit our website, facebook.com slash moviedatepodcast. Have you heard about the painter, Vincent Van Gogh, who loved color and who played his show? Now in the museum, what have we here? The baddest painter since God's young Vermeer. And he loved, he loved, he loved life so bad. His paintings had twice the color of the paintings had.